This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. You can download or stream new episodes every Thursday, so make sure you subscribe to stay connected. Today we're focusing on a building whose history can be traced back to the 11th century. Clifford's Tower in the city of York sits on a raised earthwork that was once the site of a timber keep built by William the Conqueror, and the tower that can still be seen there today dates back to 1245. Now, though, it's been brought up to date for the 21st century and, of course, visitors following multi-million pound works to conserve and improve it. And some of these improvements include dramatic soundscapes from across the centuries. No, it worth worse and worse. Hair, sitting. À la justice de l'échecur, la pétition de Jean-Guillaume Darrell. Are we continuing? About he lied on so hard that he sweared, brast a twoe. Yes. Which platform is he going to, Baldock? There is a platform at the top of the tower, sir. And what do you keep there? Nothing, sir. But it overlooks the iron ordinance. Well, joining us now to explain the history of Clifford's Tower, how it's been enhanced and what you can see and hear when you get there are our three guests for this episode. Hello, I'm Jeremy Ashby and I'm the Head Properties Curator at English Heritage. Hello, my name is Rachel Baldwin and I'm a Senior National Project Manager with English Heritage. And hello, I'm Ruth Haycock, I'm the Interpretation Manager, which means that I'm in charge of how historical information at Clifford's Tower is presented to our visitors. To set the scene then, first of all, could someone describe Clifford's Tower to me? What it looked like before the project began and what its general setting is? It's fair to say that Clifford's Tower is is iconic to York and it is one of the highest structures in in the city landscape. It is a quatrefoil tower, which basically means like a four-leaf clover standing on top of a huge mott. It's limestone a lovely creamy milky white stone rising 15 metres into the air and around it is a a wide open space of grass that people can walk around and view it in all its glory. On this mound of grass is also some steps I believe you can that's the way that you would access the tower at the top. That's right yeah there's one set of steps that goes up to the uh, tower obviously as a defensive structure there weren't too many points of access, so there's a a wide staircase leading up to it. Okay. If people have been following on English Heritage's Twitter page or Facebook page and and these sorts of things, they might have seen these hoardings around that mound. So have the hoardings now gone? So the hoardings have now come down. uh, Literally this week, we've taken those down. So we've re-revealed the mott. I mean, throughout the project, you could always see the tower, but it's been encased in scaffolding for some time. So all of that is coming down now, and yes, it's, it's, it's back on show. But essentially, part of this project was not about changing the external appearance of, of Clifford's Tower or the Mott. It was very much about enhancing it, so it hasn't changed that much, to be honest with you, from the outside. Yes, and it's more about what's inside, and we'll get onto that soon. Mm-hmm. Um, Ruth, could you also describe York for us, for people who don't know the north of England, who might not have been there? or who might actually be listening from overseas right now? Well, as a city, York is a really bustling place. There's huge tourism internationally, or has been. And so the tower is one of those places in which people like to take off their list, essentially, I think, when visiting York. 
so there's lots that you can do in York itself. There was the lovely river walks, the shopping, museums and galleries, and of course, Clifford's Tower. So there's a huge visitor offer in York itself, of, of which Clifford's Tower is a part of. And there's a lot of layers of history to York as well, isn't there? Because I remember as a child, I went to the Jorvik Viking Centre. So obviously we've got lots of different eras of history that can be reflected in a visit to York, which includes Clifford's Tower, which itself has many layers of history. It certainly does. And we really hope that, you know, through the stories that we're telling as part of the new interpretation, that we look across all of those sort of historical periods and key moments and we tell those stories, hopefully in new and different ways that will engage our visitors. Absolutely. And that's a beautiful segue for Jeremy to come in and, and, and talk to us about the historical aspects of the tower, who built it and when, and also what was its original purpose? Yeah, sure. OK. And this is not going to be a short answer, I'm afraid. <laughs> um, but you said it, Charles, at the beginning that it's... Um, the first structure on the site was built by William the Conqueror, and it was. It's built a couple of years after the Battle of Hastings of 1066. And I think it was Rachel talked about that the tower stands on top of the Mott, the Big Earth Mound, because it's a classic Mott and Bailey castle. And what we've got is still the Mott, it's the man made Earth Mound. And then on top of it is a stone tower, which is not actually the successor of William the Conqueror's tower, it's the successor of the successor of that. And it's just about possible there was another one in the middle of the timeline that we don't know about. But the tower that we know and still have was built in the middle of the 13th century. We think it started in the year 1245. And it was built by King Henry III, who is the son of King John and the father of Edward I. And in particular, he was starting to gear up for military conflicts against Scotland. And he realised that he needed to fortify one of his most important strongholds in the north of England. And that's when he carries out building works all over the castle of York, including Clifford's Tower. It's just that Clifford's Tower is the bit that's, that's still there. So that's important to understand, first of all, that Clifford's Tower, though as a monument, is actually not that big in terms of ground plan. It was formerly part of something much, much bigger. It was formerly part of York Castle, which is actually a very, very big castle. But quite a lot of it has now disappeared. The original purpose of the tower, we think, is rather difficult to know. Standing on top of a mound, it certainly would be one of the most secure places within the site. So it could be that the intention was that they should keep stuff safe in there. Perhaps it might have been a treasury or something else of that kind. We think that it could have been actually part of the prison. We also think that it might even, and I think this is my favourite idea, that it was actually originally built almost as part of a palace because the building itself, as we'll be discussing later, it's got some quite interesting features about it, some quite stylish, some quite showy features. So my favourite is that Henry III, who liked his creature comforts, said, OK, I'm going to build myself within this castle of York a palace. And he would put it on top of the mound in a place where absolutely everyone would be able to see it and he would be able to see everyone. And I think that's probably as close as we might get to what the intended purpose of Clifford's Tower was. Over history, though, it's done a lot of other things too. And that's what we'll talk about as this podcast goes on. OK, so that's some basic facts established then. What about the name? Why Clifford's Tower? Okay, not for the last time in this podcast. I'm going to give my favourite answer. We don't know for certain. There are a lot of ideas that are out there. 
One of the favourite ones that you do see quite often in writing, I think, is bogus. And actually, it refers to a podcast, Charles, that you and I have done. We did one not that long ago about the career of Thomas Earl of Lancaster and Dunstanborough Castle. And the denouement of that story is that there's a battle in the year 1322 at the town of Boroughbridge, not that far from York, in, in North Yorkshire, where a force of royalists under Edward II beat a force of rebel barons under Thomas Earl of Lancaster. Now, one of the rebel barons that got beaten was a man called Roger Clifford, and he was brought to York and was executed, though we don't actually know where in York he was executed. There's always been a legend going around that he was hanged from the outside of the tower that we call Clifford's Tower, though actually I checked this and the the early sources don't actually say that detail. So it's often been said, oh, it's known as Clifford's Tower in memory of this event in 1322. Only problem with that is the name doesn't appear in writing for a very long time after that. The name first appears in writing in 1596. So that's in the reign of Elizabeth I. It's a very, very long time afterwards. And there are a lot of writings about the tower in the meantime, and they don't call it that. So I don't buy that idea at all. I think what's much more likely, and this is something else that some other historians have said, that it's called Clifford's Tower after some later members of the Clifford family. And the Clifford family are a very important family in the north of England. They have, for example, they hold the the rank of Earls of Cumberland, which is a very big, big rank. And they often hold high office in the government of the north of England. But they're a, a very, very well-known family. And one Earl of Cumberland around about the time when this name first appears in writing is the third Earl of Cumberland, who is the father of a well-known other Clifford, Lady Anne Clifford. But he is being suspected, and I, I like to think this is true, actually held the post of being hereditary constable or hereditary keeper of that tower, and it was named after him. One thing that we do know absolutely for certain is that there were some of his successors as Earl of Cumberland who certainly did have authority over the tower. And when you go to Clifford's Tower now, above the entrance door, you'll see two coats of arms, one coat of arms of the kings of England, King Charles I. But below that, the coat of arms of the Clifford family. And that coat of arms sculpted was put up in 1644 by the daughter of the fifth and last Earl of Cumberland in memory of her father. And so I think that actually that's why it's called that. It's named after the people who held the hereditary post of of looking after it. I see. So either, if you believe the legend, it's named after the man who is hanged outside of it, or it was actually named after the person who actually more more prestigiously looked after it. I think, yes. And and I'm going for the latter. But uh, as I say, we've never really bottomed this one out. So uh, really, there's still quite a lot to play for with that one. Let's move on to um, some of the aspects of the conservation and improvements of Clifford's Tower. I understand that you've been involved, Jeremy, with Clifford's Tower for quite a long time. Could you explain how long you've been involved with the project and also why it needed to be improved at all? Yeah, I will. Clifford's Tower was on my desk on my first day working for English Heritage back in 2003. And here it is still on my desk now. But I like to feel after this project, we may be able to take a bit of a rest from it. It's a property that really needed something doing to it. Because for a very long time, when you visited Clifford's Tower, it wasn't a particularly good experience. You would have to climb up 
flight of very, very steep steps with only minimal handrails and nowhere to rest all the way up. So you'd actually be fairly exhausted by the time you got to the top. You still hadn't got inside the tower. Then in the gateway, there was a very small ticket booth in there in which someone would sell you a ticket and possibly a guidebook. And then you'd go into the tower itself. But actually, the interior of the tower, and I'll explain how this happened later, has since the 17th century been a ruin. It's been open to the sky. And Clifford's Tower isn't huge. So what you're actually standing in is a quite small courtyard. Within that courtyard, you were looking at the walls of the inner face, as it were, of the outer wall. But there's nothing showing what the internal plan of Clifford's Tower was. All partition walls and other things of that kind of long gone. So you've really just got the, the skin of the building. In that open air space, we were trying to do our best to tell what's actually a really, really quite important and complicated story. Because the claims that we make about Clifford's Tower are, are pretty high claims. We say that this was a place that's absolutely in the centre of the government of the whole of the north of England for centuries. And it's a place where dramatic but complicated and sometimes tragic events happened. And actually, the interpretation that we could give to this site that was in the open air was pretty limited. We had three panels in which we were trying to tell the whole of the history. We had a model, a tactile model, and we had a few panels fixed to the tactile model, giving some idea of the types of people who would have been at York Castle at different times of its history. So we were doing our best, but it really wasn't great. And things didn't get better within the visit thereafter, because one of the other things that people want to do at Clifford's Tower, they want to look at the structure, they want to understand the history. But as Rachel said, I think at the beginning, Clifford's Tower is one of the highest places within the city. So once you climb up the mound and actually you climb up inside the ruined walls of the tower. You could then walk around the wall walk around the top and there are truly wonderful views over the city, really fantastic views. Only problem is that the wall walk was really narrow. So if you were there with your family or with a group, and groups often do come to Clifford's Tower, they'd all have to sidle round single file. It's not possible for people to get together and they go, oh yeah, look at the minster over there or anything else like that. It was just really difficult. And often what we found is that people afterwards would go, you know what, actually, I've done that once. I don't really want to go again. People from York, they really didn't feel a great feeling that when visitors came to the city, they'd take them to the Minster, they'd take them to the National Railway Museum, they'd take them shopping. But they might not take them to Clifford's Tower because actually the whole experience was deemed to be really quite underwhelming. So we really knew, and we've known for a long, long time, that actually this wasn't one that we'd got right, and that actually to do justice to this precious site, we were going to have to do something really quite radical. That adds a layer of complication to the project, doesn't it, Rachel? It, as Jeremy said, it's quite a small building with this sort of courtyard at the bottom. But what are the main elements now of what English Heritage has done? You're right, it is a, a really small building, but it's got such a massive story to tell. So we tried to get a lot in there. And essentially, the main elements of, of this project are twofold. So first and foremost was the conservation of the tower. And secondly, was about improving the experience that people had when they visited it. Now, we couldn't do one without doing the other. So what we have done is inside the tower, we have, to all intents and purposes, recreated the differing floor levels that would have been there 
when it, it was a working medieval tower. So we've inserted a timber structure in the centre. We've recreated a first floor level and we've also recreated a roof deck as well. And the reasons we've, we've, for doing this are multiple fold, really. By recreating the, the first floor, we've opened up entirely new vistas from the tower that, that no one's seen for hundreds of years, really. You can look out of windows and arrow slits that no one's been able to look out of for a very long time. We've opened up staircases that have been out of use ever since the 17th century, and we've repaired them. And by putting in the roof deck, what we've done is created this completely 360-degree uninterrupted vista of York, the Vale of York, and on a good day, you can see right over to the Yorkshire Wolds, which are quite a distance away. So it's it's all internal that we've basically recreated the feel of a medieval castle, albeit with contemporary materials. Could I jump back in actually at this moment? Because there's something really important. One of the things that we thought about a long, long time ago was whether it would be possible or appropriate for us to actually restore Clifford's Tower to its former appearance. And it's a long story, but I mean, actually, we came to the conclusion that this was neither possible nor appropriate, really for a few reasons. First of all, because actually the tower's history is really quite a complicated one and it's changed its internal configuration. I think we can be pretty sure several times. So actually, if you restore to one period, you would be ignoring another one. There's also a technical problem that Clifford's Tower, when you visit it, the historic stonework, some of this is actually quite a long way away from vertical and and horizontal, that the mound on which it sat has had some moments of subsidence and there are parts of the structure that are actually leaning quite a long way out of true. So actually trying to put whole timber floors back in where first timber floors have been, it would have been technically so very difficult that probably sort of best avoided. And I think what we came to the conclusion is we should honour the fact that it's had a complicated history. We should honour the fact that it's been a ruin since the 17th century. And The structure that we put in should be an entirely sympathetic but entirely modern contemporary response to that historic structure. And that's the the line that we've taken. So when you go in, it won't look exactly as it did at any time in its history until now. What you're seeing is something that's very new. Rachel, going back to you then, what did Clifford's Tower need in terms of conservation? Because obviously it is a very old structure, has been a ruin for a long time. It was open to the sky, as Jeremy said. Yeah, well, it's it's probably quicker to tell you what, what we haven't done, to be honest with you. It, I mean, to be able to fully scaffold Clifford's Tower, both externally and internally, is a once-in-a-lifetime, if not several-lifetimes opportunity, which we wholeheartedly embrace. So every elevation, both internally and externally, has been fully surveyed. It's been thoroughly tap tested whereby the conservation architects and the masons go around every single stone and and tap lightly with a hammer to understand if a stone is true or not if work needs doing on that stone and this has been done on every elevation in addition to that we've we've done a series of micro pinning work so any stones that were looking the facings were shaling off we micro pin them which is is quite a laborious task to do but we went through it wholeheartedly. Another element that we've done with the conservation works is we have installed what's called Syntec anchors, which on the forebuilding of Clifford's Tower, which is a a structure at at the very entranceway, we've pinned it back to the main structure with anchor bolts that you can't see 
but they're seven metres in length, these things. And we have made it so structurally secure that it's absolutely fantastic. That being said, the leaning of the tower, you know, the things that have happened over time that Jeremy was talking to, the, so the leaning of the stonework hasn't been compromised at all. It's still got that feel of, of its historical tower, but it's been made completely safe and conserved. In addition to that, we've undertaken a series of cleaning schedules. So we've used what's called poultice cleaning, which is almost like a, a face mask for stones where you slap it on cover it and then peel it back and when you peel it back all the impurities and nasty things that have got into the stonework over the years are are taken away. We've also used a a technique called doff cleaning which is a high temperature steam cleaner on certain areas of the stonework and this again takes away dirt but it also kills algae and moss and all nasties that have grown over time because essentially Clifford's Tower, this thing was built to withstand medieval siege warfare. So she's in pretty good nick, but over the course of the years, things like the Industrial Revolution and cars, and there was a coal-fired power station not too far from it in the 50s and 60s, you know, these are all added into the mix of making her a bit tired and a bit jaded. So what we've done is spruced her up. We've replaced a lot of mortar joints, we've repointed, we've micropinned, as I've said. And I have to say that the medieval masons did such a good job that out of all of the conservation and all that stone that we have checked, we have only replaced six stones out of the whole thing. It's been a fantastic effort by the masons and the conservationists because our prime purpose is to conserve as much historic material as possible. And we've done that. And the only reason we replaced six stones is because we really, really had to. They were unsafe. And I think that's that's a really fantastic achievement. Yes, that's some credit to the Masons. So how does it look now, though, bearing in mind all that grime's come off? It looks great. I mean, it's one of the beauties of magnesium limestone in that it will always retain its, its sort of creamy white pallor, you know, but the fact that we've done all this cleaning and we've repointed in areas, it does look brighter. It looks cared for which I think is fair to say it probably didn't before. Whilst we've, over the years, we've always maintained Clifford's Tower, we've never had this opportunity to be this exactly. interventionist with the, yeah, exactly, with, with the whole conservation. So it's it's been a fantastic opportunity and I think we've done it justice. I think it, visitors now, potential visitors and listeners are pretty enticed. There's going to be other new elements that they can enjoy as well. There's this timber canopy and roof deck, which you touched mm-hmm. on and the walkways inside. So what challenges did you encounter about those as the project proceeded? Because obviously, until those were installed, we're talking about quite an empty, cavernous space. Yeah, so it was essentially put in a square peg into a round hole, literally. So a precision engineered piece of timber and all the steelwork that went with it had to be put into a tower that has been there several hundred years and really wants to lean forward slightly. So it wasn't easy. And medieval masons didn't have the restrictions such as building regulations and health and safety to contend with. So there were challenges about that. And the thing with medieval buildings, and it's it's one of the joys of working with them, is that they are full of surprises. You never stop learning. And Clifford's was the gift that kept on giving in that every time we lifted something, opened something, we found something new. So these designs that we've had on paper for a a number of years had to 
change ever so slightly to take into account that historic nature of the building. So it was constantly shifting um, piece of engineering going into a, a medieval building. So there were always challenges every day, something new. I can imagine. But the structure's finished now, obviously. I understand there will be lots of new, what you call in the business, interpretation, which is another way of saying telling the site's story. Jeremy, what would you say are the highlights of Clifford's Tower's history as it's being presented via various means now? Yeah, well, this is one of those sites for which there's no shortage of material. And, it, you know, unlike, I suppose, sometimes I, I, I say, well, after the foundation, the history of this site was fairly uneventful. That's not so with Clifford's Tower. It has a very, very eventful history, which we really wanted to try to do justice to. And the eventfulness of it, I mean, it starts very early. In fact, it really starts before the castle was complete. And first of all, we knew we needed to do a bit of scene setting. I think you'd mentioned that uh, you'd been to the Orvik Viking Centre, which is just around the corner from Clifford's Tower. And in fact, even before that, you know, it was a big Roman city and we needed to make some reference to that too. But the history as a castle, it starts quite violently in the time of William the Conqueror. There are several rebellions against William the Conqueror. Um, And in fact, it's to deal with one of those rebellions that he comes up and builds the castle in the first place. But the moment he's gone away, various people who don't like him very much burn it down. He comes back and builds another one, goes away, they burn it again. You know, the, the pattern is starting to be set up. So it starts in a quite dramatic period of the Normans taking over a quite hostile city of York. Famously or infamously, it has a, a truly tragic event just over 100 years after that in the year 1190 when the Jewish community of the medieval city were basically forced to take refuge inside the castle by a a hostile mob. And the mob was on the verge of actually breaking into the castle and presumably massacring everyone on site. But before they could do this, the members of the community took their own lives. I mean, it's a very upsetting and very, very, very difficult, very sensitive story. Shortly after that, we get into sort of more firm ground when Clifford's Tower itself is built. And that actually inaugurates a reasonably stable period in which the castle actually was behaving pretty much as it should have done in governing the north. And we now got quite a lot of detail about that. Towards the end of the Middle Ages and into the Tudor period, it started to show the cracks. It started to be neglected. It really wasn't used properly and intensively as it might have been. And by the 17th century, it had pretty much fallen into ruin. But it has a last hurrah in the middle of the 17th century with the English Civil War, when royalists and parliamentarians fight for control of York and Clifford's Tower as a high point. Actually, it's a strategically very important site. And we know that cannon mounted on top of Clifford's Tower were used by royalist garrisons to actually shoot at parliamentarians outside the city. And even after the Civil War, it remains garrisoned. But the history of the site operationally comes to the end with another literally explosive event, as it happens this in the year 1684, either by accident or by sabotage. And the jury is still out on this one. The contents of the armaments inside the tower, including gunpowder, caught fire and blew up. And it's after that that Clifford's Tower becomes completely ruined and is never brought back into use except as an ancient monument, really until now. So actually that marks quite an important punctuation mark within the city. But even then, history hadn't finished. Clifford's Tower 
I think Rachel said it's iconic. You know, it's a, it, it's a structure that people in York think of just as much as York Minster as being actually the embodiment of, of, of their city. L.S. Lowry painted it. So it's a big, important landmark. And even in times when it hadn't been possible physically to get to the tower because it was actually inside the county jail or anything else, I think, you know, people were well aware of it as, as a high point and a landmark within the city. So a long and complicated story with lots of episodes to it and trying to tell that story in a small space has actually been a, one of the more enjoyable challenges that I've, I've had to deal with. And it's been great to work with Ruth and some of her colleagues in, in trying to get that right. Yes. Just regarding one of those elements of the greater story, one of those episodes, you've described this issue with the Jewish community. How did English Heritage approach the telling of that story? Well, both of us really ought, ought, ought to talk to that. It's a story that as a historian I've been very interested in. I'd encountered medieval Jewish history before in, in a previous job, actually. So, so, so I already knew something about it. But of course, it's a very delicate and shocking story. It's di- and it has an additional difficulty that it's actually quite difficult to know for certain what happened because much of the detail of the event took place actually inside the castle where only Jewish people were present. So it's, you know, really, we, we don't know. But what we do know is that the Jewish community was under attack and many of its members committed suicide. Now, that's, of course, a shocking story. But because of its place within national history and within Jewish history, it's a story that absolutely demands to be told. And one of the first things that we felt we needed to do was actually talk to modern Jewish people. And we've been very lucky that in the last few years, there's been something of a resurgence of Jewish community life within the city of York. There have all been Jewish people there for a very, very long time. But actually, a quite vigorous community of the liberal Jewish tradition has has assembled itself you know, in the last few years. And so actually, we were always able to go to them and to say, look, this is the story that we're thinking of telling and the way that we're thinking of telling it. What do you think? And they've actually been great critical friends to our project in saying, yeah, we really like that or, yeah, we don't like that. And actually, can we suggest that you talk to this person? They might be able to give you another perspective. So that was part of the start of it. And as the historian, I think I'd worked out something of the story that I felt I wanted to tell and that that some modern Jewish people also felt was about right. But then we were faced with the challenge of how we were going to tell it. And it's at that point that I think Ruth need to take the story on a bit. What was the challenge there in telling that story, Ruth? Well, as Jeremy said, the massacre of the Jewish medieval community, it's always been a really important part of the history of the site and one that we've given great consideration and thought to working closely with members of the Jewish community in York to really help you know, inform the way in which we tell the story. And how we've done that has been through two distinct approaches, through text and through audio. So we've worked with the four-lobed architectural plan of the building to create four distinct periods within the history of the site. And in each of those lobes, there is a plinth that displays text and illustration. And so the story of the massacre of the Jewish people is communicated through information given within one of the lobes in the tower. So that's the first. And then the second is through audio. So one of the five audio stories that we've created for the project and that has been dedicated to the telling of this story 
and we worked with Gobbledygook Theatre to produce this strand of interpretation. So the audio was really sensitively scripted, it was cast and has been told by an actor of Jewish heritage. Right. I understand as well that there are other aspects of Clifford's Tower's history which play on this idea of audio as well. You can hear the sounds of the past, so to speak, although although spoken by modern people, by modern actors. So audio has played a really important part of the interpretation. So as, as Jeremy has said, it is a small site and the challenge has been how we can really tell the breadth and depth of history of Clifford's Tower within such a small space. So audio has been really integral to telling of those stories and, and indeed the visitor experience. So we have five character led audio stories but in addition to that we also have a historical soundscape as well and that again follows the four-lobed architectural plan defined by periods and so you will encounter languages that are not spoken today but also the sounds historical sounds of day-to-day life as well as you move through the site. So that's a real feast for the ears isn't it as well as the eyes you've got all this new wooden structure inside that people can explore and you can also sit in these alcoves i believe where Mm -hmm. you will hear these different voices as if from the past and voiced by local people that's quite a lot for the visitors to sort of absorb isn't it it must be quite nice it is but it's also about offering different experiences as well different ways to engage our visitors Not everybody wants to stand and read text-based information. They might want to gather that through other experiences. And so we've really looked to find different ways in which we can tell those stories. So it offers choice, I think, which is really important uh, for our visitors. And accessibility as well for people who might not be able to enjoy the sights. They can enjoy the sounds at least. And, you know, the feeling of uh, walking around and the surfaces that they walk on, etc., Yeah, an important aspect of the interpretation project and indeed the wider project has been access. In developing the project, offering experiences that are, you know, inclusive and enriching as possible has been central to the scheme. And importantly, finding ways to seamlessly integrate the different approaches also to avoid the them and us approach. So we've developed permanent and handheld tactile maps. We've created an audio description tour. We've translated all texts and scripts into five different languages and embedded hearing loops into the audio seating. So these are just a few of the ways in which we've tried to broaden access throughout the site. The audio tour is an audio description tour. So that's for blind and partially sighted visitors. And they will get text through audio, but they will also get a description of the environment, the part of the tower that they're standing in, and also navigational information as well. In terms of the translations, that is translating our text into five different languages, and that will be available via QR code as downloadable PDFs. What else will people be able to do? And how have you approached the well-known views from the top? Who wants to start us off? Rachel, do you want to start us off? The views from the top, it's incomparable. I mean, it's its the finest view across the cityscape that there is available in York. And speaking from personal experience, it beats hands down the view from the top of York Minster, purely because it's, it's a completely uninterrupted view. 
you can see right across the Vale of York, you can see the walls. And because of its its vantage point of where it is, the only other things at that level on the skyline are York Minster and a few church spires, medieval church spires. So you are really getting a, a view of the York as it would have been across the ages. And it is absolutely stunning. And before, and Jeremy alluded to it, the experience was you, you had to go around the outer edge of the tower. Now with the new timber deck, you can walk all across, left, right. You can take pictures with your phone without worrying about tripping up or anything like that. You know, it's it's absolutely fantastic. You, do, you can sit, you can take your time. It is spectacular. Absolutely amazing to look at the city from that angle. Almost like a roof terrace then, effectively, where... Yeah, effectively a roof terrace. So yeah, there's there's plenty of room, you know, family groups, school groups, whatever, and it, it won't feel crowded like it did before. We used to have queues going around or, you know, people shuffling along. We, we won't have that anymore. It's a really wide open expanse. One of the things about it is that Rachel said this definitely before, that we really wanted to make all these radical changes to the interior of Clifford's Tower, but from the outside, we wanted it still to look pretty much as it always has done and we know that that's something that a lot of people prize you know quite a lot so there was a bit of a challenge for us in actually getting the detailing of this right because obviously there has to be some kind of security barrier around the edge so that people safety barriers so people don't fall off actually you can have a very lightweight translucent structure that just doesn't really register but the other thing is that the barrier is set just enough behind the edge of the tower as it were that it doesn't really register from being down below and this is one of the moments where the tower being on a mound is playing to our advantage because actually you're not looking at it from the level of the bottom of the tower you're looking at it from a level quite a long way down below that from the street level so the angles don't really pick up this modern intervention And what that meant is that it's possible for us to put some fixed interpretation up there that actually talks about some of the context of what's around us. So it will identify some buildings that you can see, give names to the churches or anything else like that. But what we also wanted to do was at least hint at the very sort of detailed layered history of of the environs of, of York Castle. And that sometimes is going off some way into the city. So, you know, we pick out the tower of St. Mary Bishop Hill Junior Church, which is, you know, an Anglo-Saxon tower. It's even older than Clifford's Tower was built. You know, we've picked up the location where William the Conqueror destroyed a whole suburb of the city and flooded it in order to create the King's Fish Pond. And that's not there anymore, but it was an important part of the city's landscape until the 17th century. So we've sort of said something a little bit more about that and so on and so forth, I think, just to complement the detailed history of the castle that we give inside the tower. We actually talk a bit more about the history of the city up on the roof deck. Yes, thematically, it all works together as you journey all the way through the bottom and then through the middle and then up right up to the top. It's, it's multi-layered all the way through. Yeah, well, that's exactly the way that we thought about it, Charles. When we were putting it together, we thought, what what's the visitor journey going to be? And, you know, what is that, that progression? And, you know, in essence, I think people can do different bits of it in different orders if they really want to. But for many people, they will start at the bottom and work their way up to the top. And I think these incomparable views from the top are a brilliant payoff to the visit. But, you know, a visit, I think, now may take you know, some time to do all the interpretation and to look at all of the features. You know, this is a visit of, you know, of an hour or so minimum, whereas before, I think some people would stay for 10 or 15 minutes and feel that they'd 
done or all that the site had to give them. Yes. So if we had to give a quick list, uh, a rundown of, of all the types of sort of ways that we can enjoy Clifford's Tower now in its new form, I suppose we have audio, information panels. What are the others? Animation seen at the Piaggio on arrival uh, to the site. And as you mentioned, you know, we have text and illustration displayed on plinths within the tower. We've got the audio character-led stories and the sound, and that sound is embedded within the seating. We have this historical soundscape that can be heard throughout the main space within the tower and a web-based virtual tour also. So it's really highly interactive then. It's, it uses the traditional ways of telling stories at English heritage sites, like audio and prior to that, panels. But it's also got these other ways that you can access via the web, QR codes, your mobile phone, all that kind of thing. So it, it's past, present and future all in one, isn't it? Indeed. I think as well, it's very much that when you're in the tower and you're on top of the tower, you are part of the city of York, which in itself just drips history and you're in it. And if we focus then, Ruth, on this audio side of things, which obviously we're doing on a podcast today, how are the voices of Clifford's Tower created and also these historical soundscapes created? So the project team at English Heritage, we worked with Gobbledygook Theatre on the creation of the character-led stories and also the projection studio on the creation of the historic soundscape. And all of the sound interventions work with the architectural plan of the tower. So to create the character-led stories, we worked with Gobbledygook Theatre, creating five fictional characters from the history of York Castle and Clifford's Tower. And the stories are then told through a single-person perspective, because it was really important for us to capture the human experience in telling the different stories. And a huge amount of research went into developing the scripts. And the characters were cast from an open call to people living in York. And casting from York was really important for the project. Because Clifford's Tower is so well loved and an important monument within the city, it's one that the people of York feel really passionate about and that the team wanted to involve. So that was, you know, it's a really wonderful process that we went through to create those characters. And in terms of the soundscape, again, the projection studio did huge amounts of research, which they also did in collaboration with Durham and York University and the National Archives. And again, as a visitor, you will hear the stories told, as I've mentioned before, in different languages, not spoken today, and combined with the sounds of your sort of, of the day-to-day -day life, as you may have heard back in the day. So as you move through the tower, you experience these sounds at different levels, at ground level, but also first floor level as you move through. And what's really wonderful is that you experience the sound of like the weather. So there's the rain and there's birdsong, mm -hmm. and it really lifts the experience of, uh, of visiting the tower. And if you're a school party coming to visit Clifford's <laughs> Tower at some point soon, you might even hear your own teacher, I gather. Because I think some of the voices are, are teachers, are they not? That's correct, actually. Yeah, two of the, uh, the actors are teachers in York. So when you look back on what Clifford's Tower offered visitors previously and what it offers visitors now, how big, how significant is the improvement? Well, I think it's, it's incomparable, to be honest with you. It's, whilst from the outside, it doesn't look that we've done that much. From the inside, it is just a completely wow, jaw-dropping experience. And I've had the honour of working on this since work began, the project began. 
So I've seen the changes as they've happened. But every time someone new has walked in, just a look on their faces and that intake of <gasps> breath, it just warms my heart because this is what we wanted. This is it. And we've we've done it. It's been amazing. Ruth, what about you? How has the site improved for you? I think one of the really significant improvements as well, in addition to everything that has been achieved within the tower, is the welcome that you get when you arrive at Clifford's Tower. So now at the base of the tower, you've got a really beautiful seating area and inset into the paving that mirrors the arc of the seating is a timeline. And that timeline sets out some really key events within national history, within the city of York and within the history of Clifford's Tower. We have a a little Piaggio, it's a quirky little tuk-tuk vehicle that will be selling our admissions tickets and guidebooks. And into that, we have the CAD animation, which gives you the sort of the fly through of Clifford's Tower, how the building has been transformed. So our visitors coming into that area will really get a flavor of what to expect when they go into the tower. But in addition Mm. to that, we now give information, historical and interpretive information about the site as well, which we didn't have before. So what we really hope is that we've created, as I say, this really warm welcome for our visitors and one that will encourage them to visit the tower. What's your favourite part of the building then, Ruth? Mine is the vista that you get when you enter the main building, the tower itself. It really now, it's a dynamic space with the new walkways, providing access to the first floor level. They connect the spaces that were previously inaccessible since 17th century and the view that you get through the central roof section that just frames an ever-moving sky view is just really beautiful. So it's now such an inviting space and one that you really want to spend time in and explore. Do you have a particular favourite spot, Rachel? I have quite a few, but I think one of my favourite spots is actually on the, the southeast internal side because we have put this precision engineered timber in. As I said before, it accentuates the lean of the tower. And every time someone new comes into the tower and looks at it, they turn to look at me and say, is that timber straight? And I'm like, <laughs> yes, yes, it is. It's the walls that aren't. And it's it's a real sort of leaning Tower of Pizza kind of moment in the, you can really see the lean on the building. It is a fantastic spot. For you, Jeremy, does it have any quirks that have come out as a, as a result of the conservation work and improvements? Oh, loads. Absolutely. I mean, it's a, you know, as Rachel will say, it's the gift that keeps on giving that actually the conservators and the, the, the team that worked on the on the site did it with such love and care that actually it really does feel lived in. And yeah, there's a load of details that, you know, we'd never been able to spot before. The constructional traces that are left on the stones themselves, some of the scorching patterns from when the building caught fire in, in, in 1684. And I think for me, the complete favourite thing about all of it is actually the way that this ancient but slightly overlooked building is now displayed about as well as I can imagine it ever could be. That this wonderful contemporary structure that sits over the over the top of it and protects it from the elements, it also meant that we can now light it properly. And in fact, dramatically, it's a building actually of great drama inside and all of that now comes out so it is just literally jaw-dropping when you see it because I think you know many people me included must have thought that we already knew everything about Clifford's Tower and actually 
now we, we realise we only knew the half of it. And now it's into a new chapter on its own as this visitor attraction. So um, thank you all for talking to us about the history and the conservation and improvements to the tower. And uh, I hope plenty of people get a chance to come and visit in the uh, spring and summer 2022 and beyond. Thanks very much, Charles. It's a pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Also coming up soon, part three of our Hadrian's Wall mini-series. One really specific date is a stone, again from Chester's, and we know that it was on the uh, 30th of October, 221 AD. (laughs) Thanks for listening. See you next time.